we are talking here about a profound leadership development principle. And very few people make a proper transformation in leadership to truly transform in their own mind to evaluate situations from the standpoint of a situation rather than the, from the standpoint of a personalized response. Right. Now then something quite magical happens. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with David Gomez. David is the founder of Future Dynamics, with more than three decades of helping CEOs and executives get centered, develop a clarity of purpose, and operate at significantly higher levels and also in profoundly better and more enlightened ways. David and I met nearly 40 years ago, I believe, and we've been in conversation ever since about the big questions of life, leadership, personal development, and the evolutionary process unfolding for humanity. David is a big picture thinker, an intuitive coach and consultant, and he brings game-changing insights to the human condition, and to how leaders can unleash latent capabilities and translate ideas into action that produce sustained results. David, it's uh, great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. This is uh, great to be here. And uh, as you just mentioned, we have 40 years of water under the bridge between us, and this is a different kind of experience where one of us is inviting the other into an exceptional dynamic that obviously you've been developing over the years. I've been uh, delighted to respond to the challenge that you put my way, and let's see how it goes. Awesome. We're actually conducting this on a Saturday morning here in the Pacific Northwest, an evening for you in the Netherlands, that is Holland, (laughs) <laughs> for for those that don't know where the Netherlands is. And, uh, <laughs> and so let's jump right in. And let me ask you first about the evolution of your work. For many years, you operated with the name Capable Dynamics. And then a couple of years ago, you updated your business name and your focus to Future Dynamics. So two questions here. First, what was the core idea of Capable Dynamics in the first place? And second, what was the significance and the meaning of the shift to future dynamics? Well, great start. Absolutely a great start, launch into the process. So around about 20-something years ago, I made a cardinal decision, which is to engage or rather add another dimension to my work, which is not just to work with people more on a one-to-one private basis, but rather to engage directly with big organizations in the business world. So in making that decision, the starting point was the delivery 
of a leadership program that I designed that was quite unique at the time that was delivered to big organizations. I worked with government institutions, senior level here in the Netherlands for quite some years, big companies such as Unilever and KLM and ATOS and so on. And that was a leadership program. And as you know from your experience, a leadership program is a learning experience where people come and they get taken through a process that is designed according to certain criteria or needs after a dialogue with the people who are leading them. And then they return better informed mainly about the subject of leadership, having been in a program, a learning process, which centered around leadership development. I conducted many of those. I lost count with thousands of people over a period of many years. And one day I had a big realization. And the realization that I had that one day was that it doesn't actually, this process started the value that I felt that I need to deliver through my service was somewhat diminishing. I did not feel that the process was delivering the value that, like, if you like, the religion of uh, my own religion in the context of religion in inverted commerce, in the context of my professional application, ought to deliver. By which you mean producing the, the kind of impact that you expected yourself to produce, correct? Yes. And that bothered me. And I was increasingly looking into it, and I've come to realize that the while the program itself couldn't be faulted and the feedback overall was great, it was too fixed. It was too fixed. It was too set. It didn't provide the kind of dynamic engagement that I felt was needed, especially taking into account the, the research that I've been into, and I know you've been into over the years because it's been a subject of many of our dialogues and, and, and research work and the way we share perspectives and, and insight over the years. And the point of realization was that there is a future appearing, a dynamic, a change that is uh, not really understood very well in the world. And if a change is a a gradient, appears in a way of a gradient, then the access into the gradient of change, which is quite extreme in the world due to lack of education, lack of perception, lack of personal development, is through the lower part, the lower end of the gradient. So people think that the new iPhone or iPad or iSomething represents for them a major symptom of that change. But it's only really a symptom of the very low end of it. It's not the symptom of what's happening at the higher end, which is more to do with how the human mind, the human mentation, the human capacity is evolving, is changing. And side by side with a kind of work that uh, I, I always was very attracted to and um, I also uh, love doing, which is engaging uh, with people, the one-on-one -on -one engagement, which I feel that I always felt, that delivers the best value. So I made the decision one day that I will solely engage with uh, CEOs and senior leaders on a one-on-one -on -one basis to primarily help them to understand change, 
the nature of change, the essence of change, how it's impacting their, them personally, their business, and how to align their business in such a way that where they can lead them, themselves, the people, the business, the vision in a way that would be in sync with this opportunity of change and into a journey of discovery of how to lead the business uh, into new realms that they may have not uh, considered uh, previously. So even the other implicit dimension in, in the way you answer this uh, it is fascinating because what, what I take from this, and this is a, a learning to, to, for all of us, anybody listening to, uh, to this conversation, which is you may be extremely successful in something. You've been extremely successful, I know, with, with those high-level leadership programs. And though you said at some point it did not meet your expectations anymore in terms of what you were hoping to deliver, I actually see two other elements in, the, in that uh, vignette, which is one, you were at a point that you evolved in your own process and you, yes. wanted, to, you wanted and needed to create an, an impact or leverage your, your gifts and your skills in a, in a whole new way. And you found that the best way to impact the system, the organizational system, is to really enter a, a more of a transformational journey with, with a, the head, the CEO of, of that system, of that organizational system, and thereby catalyze the kind of change, the deeper change that you envision. Yes, this absolutely, Aviv. Yes, you're touching on such a fundamental point. The one aspect that I would highlight that I know we share a deep common denominator in terms of insight is that if you work with one person who is influential or seeks to be or can or should be, needs to be influential, and it, it's proper, which means the process releases the person into a new level in their own life, in their own personal freedom, their own capacity, their inspiration about what is possible, and releases them from certain hang-ups and, and certain what I would call stop situations or aspects in their life where, which prevent them from being at their best, then the impact into the organization is massive, just from one person. Right. You said there already a number of things that, that I will thread back to. I do want, however, to next uh, lead our discussion to, to the current work and, and whatever recent experience that, that you have had. There is always value in, in getting that flavor on the front end of a conversation for me. And, mm. and I'm interested if, since we often reflect on the kind of experiences and work we do, if you can reflect on a, on a recent experience and what is the kind of uh, insight that emerged for you in it, especially in light of the, your awareness and observation of the kind of challenges that you see with clients, with executives, with, with CEOs? Yes. Who? Well, this is uh, throwing it into an interesting brew because there are so many. And the question is, which one to highlight? This is one that you know very well from your work which is to do with creativity, innovation, and how the cycles of change and cycles of innovation grow shorter and shorter. So if a few years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were talking about cycles of three years, five years, these days is what? 
you know, if April doesn't come up with a new something at least once a year, the whole world goes nuts. You know, there is the end of the world is nigh. Apple didn't come up with a new iPhone and a new feature. And you can imagine the nature of stress that people need to work under, as well as the kind of mistakes that people make when they need to work under huge stress to deliver new ideas and innovations. And, and uh, even if it's not a real innovation, but they present it as an innovation as long as, long as it sells. So there's scenarios that, uh, I keep meeting people who are under such stress that it cuts their creative capacity. And you can see it very clearly. They need to reach for new ideas, create space for new ideas. But when a person is stressed up, if you take the physical analogy, uh, when a person is stressed in a high degree of tension physically, their ability at the body level to process energies is curtailed. So. Over time, energy that finds its way into the body, because it doesn't flow through properly, it creates issues, problems when it stops or where it stops in the body. And so you get all sorts of uh, problems like inflammation and stress syndromes and uh, issues with different uh, uh, organs and so on. In a person's thinking and mentation, when a person is a high level of stress and they need to create and share and produce, what happens it pushes them into the outer periphery of themselves. And you can see it. So I would meet a group of people and watch them because they are tasked to come up with a new idea, an innovation, some kind of breakthrough. And when people are under stress, they tend to become very formulated if they're not properly led, if a process is not properly facilitated. Right. Go on. Let me just capture there that... What you were describing in terms of first the physical stress and, and the various uh, biophysiological kind of uh, syndromes, I believe you were both using it as a metaphor for if it's like that in, at the physical, biological, functional level, then it is also true and is also the case at the mental, emotional, energetic level. And you were both using it as a metaphor to ground us in your insight about stress and also clearly that physical conditioning impacts the way people think and the way people uh, react and the way they operate as a team. Because in, in, in our work, in your work, the mind and the body is one continuum. And when people suffer physically, it impacts how they are able to function and, and think clearly uh, or not. Exactly. Yes, very well encapsulated. So let's build on this because I know that you have done significant amount of work in the whole domain of stress. I imagine both with individuals when you work with CEOs and also throughout the years with groups and teams and leadership teams. And you've actually worked with a, a methodology that is and especially designed to address the, the challenge of stress, which is the appears on your website, Future Dynamics, uh, with the idea of the 10 actors methodology. Yes. So short of participating in this workshop with you, which I know is a transformational experience, and with what you already started to explain and describe in terms of understanding the syndrome of stress, short of participating in the workshop, what is the 10 actors method and what are some of the, the key fundamentals that shape this approach? Aviv, I wouldn't expect anything lesser than you keep throwing me into big questions that need 
somewhat skillful summation, lest I will become so long-winded as to make this interview too long for anyone to listen to. Right. <laughs> but what I would do is not so much uh, go directly into the 10 Actors methodology, which takes quite some explanation, but would approach it with the underlying principle that gave birth to it. So that if anyone is interested, it would be easy for them to then uh, maybe inquire further into it. What it is, or rather what the 10 Actors methodology is based on, is that the fact, rather maybe, let's say, two fundamental insights that sit, live at the core of this methodology. One is the idea or understanding that the human is not a one thing, which means a human is not a singular entity. The human has an amazing range of capabilities, capacities. I know for a fact that this is one insight that uh, your clients walk away with when they deal with you. And this range, which happens or, or becomes alive in a person when a person is connected to their mind and, and spirit and brain and soul and emotions and higher emotions, lower emotion, instinct, intuition, gut sense, how you bring all this together, how you bring parts of them together in the way you respond to different situations. Where this goes to is that the human has an amazing chameleon capacity to deal with different situations. And including colors that you could say every person creates a unique form of color that maybe no one has ever seen before because people are so unique, uniquely designed. So, but then <clears throat> life fixes people. People end up being fixed in, in the singular theater in life. So when people respond, most people recognize it quite quickly, which is, when a person responds to a rapidly changing situation or to stressful situation, a scenario that is thrown at them during the daily endeavor, daily work, or with a family, anywhere, if a person is not educated and being provided by a methodology, a development method, developmental methodology that helps them to connect to this incredible range, they fall into a singular response. Right. They fall into a habitual response. So they, it's a bit like the hammer and the nail. If you only have a hammer, then you treat everything else as a nail. And the more a person grows and as the year pass, people get more and more fixed with a predictable response to situations. So, and it is well known that people fix people when they work together. And part of the fixing so, occurs on, well, the fixing occurs on both sides of the equation. If somebody found one way to be successful, they keep repeating using the same muscle, essentially giving up other capabilities, other approaches, because that one way delivered for them success, which is, which is a fear-based conduct. Yes. And, and you're saying even more profound fixing occurs when People find a survival mechanism under stress, under pressure, with fear or anxiety, and they come back to the same pattern, dramatically narrowing the range of their possibilities. Exactly. What happens is that the more a person becomes fixed in a singular, predictable response, the more they become fixed into it, <laughs> to the point of being unable to offer, to really respond to a need. Because for a leader... And the more senior the leader, the more critical the issue becomes, 
the big question is what does the situation call for? Any situation. Not what do I want to do? What, not what I want to happen, but rather what is happening and how to best respond to what's happening so that I can inside of that manage myself. And if then I manage myself properly, I can then impact and influence what's happening. Of course, according to, it depends what, but when it concerns a leadership scenario, you want to shape what is happening inside of the vision that you have for the, for the future of yourself, your company, the operation. So the first key insight here is that the human is not the one thing. Uh, the human is a, an entity. Every one of us is, is a being, a human being that is capable of providing a, a range of responses that we can choose. It's a choice aspect. Okay? That's right. Right. Let me just say back to you what uh, the essence of what I distill from this first part of the answer. So the work to do with helping people re-engineer themselves out of the, the lockdown or the fixing of stress at core is about expanding the range possibly. And, and when you spoke about those different parts of the human capability range, when you talk about the mind and the emotion and the, the psychology, one metaphor, one way to think about that is that if I follow what you're proposing, each one of us, we are an orchestra. Yes. And if, if it's a well-functioning or even high-functioning orchestra, the two elements that will appear in there is each instrument will sometime be able to appear and express itself in its own unique way and at the same time, that second featuring of an orchestra, they will play more of a harmonious music rather than a cacophony of noise. Yes. And then next to that, there is one more insight, which I would present in a very condensed form, yeah. which is that in each and every person, there is the lesser person and the greater person. And most people in the world don't properly get in touch with the bigger person in the person. Well, so say a little more about this, because for some people hearing that uh, may be ticked off by the way you frame this idea of a lesser and a greater person. So give us a bit of a grounding, what you mean by that and, and how it relates to the work uh, of helping people address stress constructively and creatively. Yes. Well, if you look at the instinct, the instinctive way that most people are not trained, not properly trained react to stress is through the fight-flight formation right. in a person. And most people also manage to become a bit artful about the fight or flight. So you don't quite see it. But if you detect it properly, then you can see that when a like threat, the first when a person, people meet a new scenario or meet change, then they ask, ask themselves, is this a threat for me? Is it good for me? Or is it not good for me. Mm-hmm. Is it threatening, threatening me in some way, what I do, my work, my job, or is it an opportunity for me? Right. Of course, it's a natural, you could say it's natural for people to approach it in that way because this is part of the human genetic. It's, it's in the human DNA. But if you then add in development, personal development, where a person goes on a journey to realize that there are other ways of response rather than the fight-flight. And another way of response is, is learning 
to evaluate situation from the standpoint of the situation first, not from the standpoint first. And we are talking here about a profound leadership development principle. And very few people make a proper transformation in leadership to truly transform in their own mind to evaluate situations from the standpoint of a situation rather than from the standpoint of a personalized response. Right. Now, then something quite magical happens. And we've, we spoke about this, this area so much over the years, uh, Aviv, which is that the more a person learns to evaluate a situation from the standpoint of a situation or from the standpoint of the need, they discover new capacities in themselves that they never previously realized. Right. Let, in let terms try, of, yeah. Let me try to, to just magnify the point you're leading into because I, I believe what you're describing is the capacity of a leader to to operate and be present in a situation where they have a they show up with a witnessing capability. They, they are in the moment, but rather than be reactive to what appears in front of them, the, there is a meta level process that goes on in them that monitors themselves, the situation, what occurs in them, even at the somatic level, including recognizing I am under stress right now and my heartbeat is probably accelerating and my blood pressure is probably higher than normal. (laughs) And because of that, I need to take this into account and not come from a reactive reactive place. You're talking about cultivating that type of awareness that allows a person to bring a reflective quality into the leadership work. Yes, absolutely. And I think you, you even in what you said before that, you revealed another huge, big core principle that guides your work, that guides my work, when you talked about development and the developmental aspect. Because, and I'm going to be saying this out in the open, this for some people, will be contrarian or controversial because there is a there is a trend and there is a trace in in society and in the business world and and in the culture of this time which is very much supporting the idea that what what is what arises with you right now what you feel this moment is the truth of the moment and can you be authentic to that period right. but you are actually proposing something which is not in conflict with that but when you talked about this idea of the lesser self and, and the greater self. Yes. You are saying, no, let us recognize there is a developmental potential. You show up here with skills and capabilities and large part of it is latent and actually the project of life and the project of leadership is engaging with a developmental journey to unleash and express <clears throat> the broader range of skills and gifts that are latent for you. Absolutely. And inside of that, I would highlight self-awareness self-awareness in the context of discovery, becoming aware to self and creating in oneself or or coming to a whole new context of what self means when you're talking about self-awareness. Self in terms of a greater range of capacities, capabilities, connections, perception, how a person's perception of life evolves. Like suddenly, literally, you wake up in the morning and you see the world through a different pair of eyes. Right. And so you are proposing that one of the core fundamentals of how you approach stress, and not just managing stress, but 
developing and leading through stress is the idea of personal development. You, I, I get one of your messages to leaders you work with is, well, let's go on a development journey because it is in the unleashing of those skills and capabilities that are latent in you where you will, un, you will find a whole different altitude from which to respond to stressful situations. So talk a little more about how you frame and shape this journey and enable uh, executives that, that face daily stress and pressure engage with this idea? Well, it starts with a very simple question into the realm of self-awareness, which is what happens to you when you meet a stressful situation? It's very bold. You know, these sessions, they're mostly not first principle in the context of that mostly the subject of engaging with CEOs and boards are not into stress as a first principle, but stress comes into the fray so much. Yes. So there is a need here to create a safe ecology where people can really speak up or speak out from themselves without fear of judgment of other people judging them and describing it's a question that uh, calls upon a person to describe in a very brutally honest uh, way what happens in them, to them, through them, uh, with them when they meet a stressful situation. How do you respond to it? What is your behavior like? What do you think about? Do you freeze? Do you want to run away? Do you attack? Do you go into deficiency of some kind? So the first step is to help a person into a greater self-awareness of the theater. It's like you look at yourself in this script, a little movie. I would also often ask people, say, okay, describe. This is a movie. You're seeing yourself in a movie in that situation, and you're just the step out and become for a moment either an impartial observer leading to becoming a director, like improving your directing capacity. What are you seeing? How is this person behaving? The reason why it's so important to have this starting point is because to really deal with stress and to value this approach, a person needs to connect to how they respond, to how stress affects them first, and to admit to it. Because many people have difficulty to even admitting properly about the way stress impacts them. There's another dimension here, which is that, and that's uh, something it took me years to discover, to come to which is, you know, the human can get used to anything. I mean, we know that, again, from our many discussions and conversations over the years, how human beings, they can, a human can end up living in a completely disconnected state, disconnected from life, from purpose, and still think that they're doing great. Whilst they may be doing great, but they can do so much better. A person can live with pain. The pain of stress and the pain of punishment to the point of becoming anesthetized to it uh, and half conscious about it. So the needs to, a person needs to be in a process that helps them uh, in a gentle and in a firm and skilled way out of that place in themselves to realize that they can then come from a different location, self-location, to respond to those situations. So that, that is the starting point. Yeah. Right. Beginning with recognize where you are in those situations and how you respond. And I imagine that part of the study and uh, development work of the 10 actors is that you, you help 
you help uh, executives and, and managers you work with build those other latent capacities and, and name those latent capacities or different strategies of response that they can deploy in a variety of situations such that they may be able to enjoy a, a range of versatility that otherwise they would not access. Yes. I would say one more thing. I'll push the envelope a tiny little bit here just to become a bit more tangible about the 10 actors. Uh, what are the 10 actors? There are 10 pathways into oneself, into 10 natural capacities that exist in different dimensions in the human. And you could say that the lead one, you know, the lead one concerns detection and discovery, concerns person's ability to properly and correctly read what is actually happening. Because, you know, life, 21st century life, it's like it's an ongoing assault on the senses. Like the levels of white noise that this world produces, it's like unreal. We know it, yeah? So people walk around so full mm. and so biased uh, and with so many confusing views and ideas to the point that when they need to properly read a situation and most of all probably detect the presence of a new opportunity, it happens to them in a very partial way, and partly because of the nature of stress that is eating at them and is affected the, affecting their life in a much bigger way than they realize. We're talking about cortisol, the stress hormone, and the inflammations, uh, brain derangements, brain uh, apathy, lethargy, and everything that happens to a person over time when their body becomes overly infused with chemicals and hormones that produced by the body in excessive quantities because of the body's reaction to stress. That's right. just a, a one level, yeah? Right. Fascinating body of work and, and research there and with pragmatic uh, kind of tools. So, so with that, let me now lead next and, and ask you more about, indeed, the work you described that you focus on right now, which is helping CEOs. Yes. When you begin work with a new client, a senior executive or mostly CEO, what is the process that you take them through? Just paint for me a little bit that, that process. What is, the, what is the journey that you lead them into and how do you begin? Right. When in starting a work with a CEO, by literally 100% of the times, is person reaches out to me for help. And the reason why they reach out is very specific which is to do with uh, their personal needs or they feel the need for coaching uh, or they feel the need for help in uh, for someone uh, impartial enough and capable enough to be there with them because a CEO journey is a very lonely journey. And there's so much that they cannot properly discuss with just about anyone, even when the situation is very promotive in a company when the relationships uh, is good, uh, the relationship dimension, I mean to say, is good and works well, still it's a lonely journey. Right. Uh, on many occasions, uh, a CEO would seek out for a coach to help them <laughs> to, uh, to perceive properly what is happening because some would admit 
that they tend to end up having biases where they don't want to have biases in decision-making, in perception, in how they handle people. So that's just one uh, thread where simply a person feels that they are occupying a position of high responsibility and they kind of need an impartial friend on the way. Right. That will help them, simply help them in whatever, in thinking, in decision-making, in, in designing all sorts of processes. And in that, what surprised me when I started coaching CEOs, I really didn't expect in the beginning, is the level of intimacy that is involved in the process. I was completely caught by that. I didn't, as I, I'm repeating myself, but it's the one thing that I thought, well, as it was progressing some years back, and I thought, wow, this is, nothing prepared me for this. Which you mean the, the level of transparency, the level of vulnerability, the level of disclosure, the level of openness, and, and the texture and richness of the conversation. Yes. So, and, what, hap- so what happens yeah. then? What, what happens then when, when uh, they come to you and, and you develop that approach? How, what happens then? Where do you take them in that journey? D- describe a little bit the, the way of the work. It's very simple on paper, as you know. But I know that you would understand <laughs> from your experience. When, uh, the, when for people who coach CEOs, and not, this is not unique to myself at all, the, the way is that every time you just walk into the process, and I work very live, I'm not very formulated, or I've learned basically not to be formulated, uh, but to approach every session in a very, with an open mind, an open space, because Every time something else stands up, a different kind of problem, a different kind of issue, people issue at senior level, at junior level, at dramas, issues with, uh, that concern uh, processes and strategies and little disasters and difficulties and you name it. It's just such a huge range of issues that turn up, even personal issues. You learn over time to be extremely flexible, open, very present. You need to listen like a hawk because the one mistake that a senior, especially senior coach, should never make is getting to given advice in areas that they know nothing about. Right. (laughs) Yes, you really need to know your parameters as to how you are helping that person and what is involved in really helping the person to come through that problem that day. It's a very life process. So there, there isn't really a formula, although when it concerns strategy, and when a CEO comes and says to you, okay, I need your help in developing a strategic process in the context of a certain vision or innovation, then okay, you develop with them as you very well know from your work. You then uh, proceed in developing process that involves clear timeframes and, and, and delivery targets. But the process of coaching itself is really live, and it's from one unknown to the next unknown. That's how it works. Mm. And central to this work is the idea of helping the client, helping the CEO, helping the executive rediscover themselves in a whole new way. Yes. And at a whole new altitude in terms of their perspective. What are some of the... Are there ways, methods that you can share that you use to facilitate that kind of discovery for the executives and CEOs that work with you? 
Yeah, let's highlight one. This is a great uh, overall, uh, uh, this is a great interview in terms of the question. One, let's pick up on one area, which is that it's to do with what I call in my own terminology, you know, we, each one of us, we, de- we develop our own terminologies, and I call it developmental divergence. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? When a person or a leader is being promoted, advancing into a greater capacity, greater responsibility, then, as we know, the, what has brought them or the success and capability that brought them to that point may become useless beyond that point. That's not the capability that they need. And by God, have I been seeing so many examples of that over the years where a person crosses a certain intangible threshold, suddenly they become a board member or a CEO and something else is needed. Something else is needed. What brought you there is not going to cut it. You need to develop new skill sets, new capabilities. You need to be there different. Mm-hmm. One uh, area that uh, keeps being highlighted, this is something that CEOs and senior executives face big time. This returns to, we are proceeding here with the term of developmental divergence, which is that they suddenly discover that they simply do not have the development in certain areas to cope properly with the function. Right. And as an example, they lack understanding about human nature. They lack understanding about human struggle. They misread the behavior of the people they work with because they don't have the detection capacity to understand why people behave the way they do. And so what happens is that they react and they engage in processes and dialogues and conversations that are too superficial and don't really address the issue at human level. The, the higher you are on the scale, the more these days, specifically because of the nature of change that is happening, the dynamic nature of it, what's happening in the world, what is affecting the human mind, a leader needs to understand the people. Then a leader needs to be able to hold human-to-human conversations in context, of course. And suddenly, you have the person who lacks insight. They simply lack insight about what is involved when you're dealing with a human being. So, so when you walk into, when you walk into, well, when you're invited into that kind of situation, what do you do? How do you help that leader expand their uh, range of self-awareness and understanding of their people? What, what are some of the, the, the inquiries or ways of addressing that scenario? Yeah, the way I work is uh, with anecdotes. So I would uh, dis- ask the person to describe me exactly the issue that they meet uh, and then uh, create a bigger context mm-hmm. for the issue. And uh, create a v- like first and second principle. I will explain it in a minute. Uh, and again, another subject, there's been a big uh, kind of thread in our conversations over the years, the issue of first and second principle in relation to <laughs> life. <laughs> And so I'll give a specific example, like a CEO needs to deal with a senior executive who is running a rampant. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that that executive may be delivering extremely effective, but a disaster area in the people's dealing. Right. They produce results with tremendous collateral damage. Yes. Okay. And I, I, I meet this every other day almost. Of course. Yes, and you meet this every other day. <laughs> we both meet it every other day. 
So, and uh, so often they really are at a loss. What do you do when someone delivers and it's, it's hard to come by people who really deliver, right? You know, and, and uh, deliver beyond expectation. Yeah. Really kind of, uh, they're beyond budget time and again. Uh, and everyone around them, it's like a, uh, Yes, you know, kind of a casualty a minute sometimes. And how do you deal with it? So some people are literally afraid to deal with these people. They just let them round about and kind of try to handle them like in some, some way. But there are different ways to handle people who are kind of create casualties and, uh, and, and behave in a rampant way. Uh, I would ask uh, the, the, uh, the CEO, like the senior executive to describe exactly what the problem is and how they're handling it. And through the description, mostly, when a person describes exactly how they're handling a situation, it is the beginning of the recipe of how to do it different. So let me uh, say it back to you and, and let's see if, I, if I'm getting what you're describing. What you do is you put a magnifying glass on one moment in time, one, one yes. incident one yes. scenario, and what you actually do is you slow it down. You you run it yes. in slow motion, and by running it in slow motion with a person, what you do is you let them relive the experience while concurrently you are in the dialogue with them. In essence, downloading a new operating system into that experience, yes, based on the awareness and the the observational quality that that's cultivated in the conversation. And in and through that, you, I imagine you do two things. You solve to the specific need of that challenge. But uh, I think when you spoke about first and second principle, you, you do something else. You use the local situation to universalize from it, to, to create the universal insight and awareness and, and distill and lift to a higher level understanding and perspective, the governing principles that can then be applied into other situations. I imagine an example would be, okay, in a circumstance like this, you reacted under stress, where if you took a deep breath and formulated a more unique approach to the person, understanding their needs, customizing your behavior, what you'd actually achieve is a, is a whole different outcome. So there is, a, there is in that help to the specific, but also to the general. W- yes. What am I missing or what would you restate in what I'm describing? No, two things. First, great. Absolutely. You're not missing anything in terms of what you're describing. Uh, what I would say that often the discovery, what uh, the person discovers is that they need to have a different kind of conversation, mm-hmm. a different conversation with the other person. Right. And how a different conversation can yield a very different kind of outcome. Right. Because what are the three, like, what's the short list of kind of problems, challenges, the mundane, mundane day-to-day challenges in the corporate arena? One has got to be self-awareness, the lack of self-awareness. The other one is communication. The third one is feedback. Okay. Say, uh, I think you spoke quite a bit about self-awareness and communication. Yes. Say a little more about feedback and what you mean by that as one of the triads of, uh, corporate and, and organizational issues. Yeah, because, you know, people, uh, some people are simply not open to feedback. 
And it's extremely difficult to give them feedback because they're not open. They don't know how to be open to feedback. Or they say they're open to feedback and they're not really taking it in. And some people are afraid. There's a fear factor. I meet very often scenarios where fear factors revolve, live very nearby the feedback aspects. And how do, you, are how, how do you help that? How do you help them address that? Well, the, the thing fundamentally, again, looking at, uh, or, or looking at first at a, like the bigger issue here is that if a person doesn't have an affair with developing self-awareness, they won't be able to properly accommodate feedback. Mm-hmm. You need to start. Where it starts is you've got to have an affair with expanding your self-awareness. See yourself as others see you. Mm-hmm. Do you actually? Can you do that? Right. Can you do that? Because some people don't want to see themselves as others see them. It's too frightening. <laughs> or uh, they somehow shy away from being like, occupying that position of really uh, being able to, to see that. What is actually happening in the theater between you and another person? The task in helping people to give and receive feedback uh, is to take them into a little journey not so little journey into the worlds of self-awareness. Right. And what does it mean to be an aware person, an aware executive, an aware leader? Why is self-awareness such a key developmental issue inside of the, the domain of leadership? Right. And then that enables, and the proof is, and the fact is, is when taking people through that process, which either individually or often as a group together, uh, then... Uh, when that naturally flows into a process of giving and receiving feedback, and I'm summarizing quite really uh, a process uh, here when that I would take people when in a team scenario, it becomes much easier for people to, to give and receive feedback properly. Right. In one of your newsletter, The Fulcrum Issues, David, you talk about the missing blue. What is yes. the missing blue? Right. So, yes, when uh, you're touching, you know, I know that you know that this is a big issue in my life, Yeah, personally, I know that. So, and I know that part, it's possibly part of why you're asking that question, which I do appreciate in this uh, scenario here. So, when, let's look for a moment into ethics, the subject of ethics, and it's a bit like care. You know, I have a, there are two kinds of care. Again, my terminology is, which is conditional and unconditional care. And you know, when before approaching the missing blue and the subject of ethics, well, let's do it through care. We know I'm involved with all sorts of uh, scenarios that, uh, with people who are dealing with the ecology and sustainability. It's very interesting projects to be involved in because you see how most of the care that people can develop are able to have about the ecology in the future is conditional. Like, we will diminish the CO2 levels or whatever it is. By 2050, we will have 25% less something. Hey, what makes you think you've got that long anyway? Well, living in the Netherlands, I'm not surprised you you raised this. Just to get us uh, grounded when you talk about the environment and the ecology, do you mean uh, you work with government agencies that are involved with that or with uh, the, the private sector companies or in the NGO space uh, 
in what context do you get to to work with these kind of issues? Yeah, I worked many years with government uh, agencies, right at quite a high level. and uh, and I also work with uh, you know companies that uh, are involved in the business world, but that you know there there are companies that although they are businesses, uh, they have a very deep and real issue about the future in mm-hmm. terms of people who work there. And I can mention one that I currently work with, I'm sure they won't mind, which is Tau in the Netherlands, that you have fantastic people who have real deep and genuine idealism to see a better world through awesome. helping, yeah, through helping companies to uh, clean up and do whatever is needed. Uh, and it's been quite an experience for me to witness that these issues, the way how deep these issues run in, in people, yeah, beyond just the business and the money. So, so, so you, you were yeah. leading through the two yes. kinds of care, the unconditional yes. additional care on the way to yes. explaining the, the ethic uh, dimension of uh, the missing blue. Yes. And you see that uh, in with care, just to complete that, which is that most kind of care that uh, we would come across with these days is very conditional because no one can quite stop from now to now with like the nylon bags or the pollution because why? Because it will create too much of a disruption in the context of a comfort zone that the world is in, Western world, whoever. So it's like care, but not to the point of extreme inconvenience. This is simply <laughs> right. how this yeah. is how this is how how the 21st century is arranged. Yeah, even when it speaks yeah. about care. Now let's take it to ethics and the missing blue. And it's a bit like uh, you have a scientist, you know, that German scientist in the First World War. This is a good example who was a chemist, and the reason why the gas, the big powers, ended up gassing each other, causing a horrible forms of death is because a chemist simply didn't have the ethic to not propose to use gas. Mm -hmm. Because if that chemist would have had a real blue dimension, which is the the missing blue, they actually had it not missing but present, and it goes way beyond ethic. It's to do with a natural formation that lives in the human that somehow has become ignored through the convenience of the modern world. But if that scientist would have thought, okay, I'm not going to approach that general and tell him that there's a much more efficient way of exterminating people because this deeply conflicts with my ethic as a scientist and what I perceive the purposes of science to be, then, and others like him, we would have never heard about armies and nations gassing each other at that time, or, take it further, producing nuclear devices, uh, methods of extreme destruction and mass destruction. So the ethic dimension is the weakest link in the chain of the evolution of science and the evolution of technology. We see it everywhere. We see the recent uh, example with Facebook and yeah. And the data. Let, let me say back to you uh, what I think you're pointing to in this commentary about the, the missing blue. I, I believe you're making a broader observation and commentary on history and on the evolving story of mankind where 
especially in the last uh, two centuries, two, three centuries, and, and with the onset of the Industrial Revolution and, and the industrial world where production capacities and the entry of machines and then advanced technology in, in the 20th century and into the 21st century, that, that what has occurred, we found our human beings found themselves inside larger systems. Yes. And that the, the power of the system to shut down in human beings, what you call that missing blue, the, the awareness and the conscience. Very curious that the, the word in Hebrew for conscience is matzpun, which is the same, comes from the same root of, of the word matzpen, which is the, the word in Hebrew right. for compass. Right. Essentially, the, the, right. the inner awareness that guides you as to what to do and what not to do, where to go right. and where not to go. And what you're saying is that when we look at some of the worst disasters and the worst things that happened over the last uh, two or three centuries, the finger you're pointing is that in the in the beginning and in the end, there were humans in each of those systems. And it right. was one person after another person making micro decisions. Right. And that in one scenario after another, what you have is the collective system, the organization, the nation overwhelmed the capacity of people to practice discernment, practice ethical choice, practice that sense of conscience that will say, no, that this is a no-go area. Yes. I am here to say this is something we should not be doing. And what you're saying, uh, I think, in, in your commentary about the missing blue is that the, the outcome of, of history overall is largely a product of the diminishment or the yes. the in, the inability of people to self-rise and, and self-elect to put forward that quality. And yes. I and I think based on our dialogues and how I know you, you you are asserting this commentary about the human condition at this time because in in this day and age where so much of the power is distributed to individuals because of the technological advancement and the internet and social networks and, and such, what is expressed now is easily, the easier access is to the, the lower and to lose that sense, but actually yes. the, the invitation, the opportunity where self-leadership arises is in that sense of now. I'm right. actually going to construct into my conduct as a leader, as a human being, a quality of conscience and awareness that will bring that what you call the sacred blue in terms of where one should and should not support and where, where one should enable and where one should not enable. And what you're saying is in the absence of that leadership is void of the very first fundamental idea yes. of dignity, of principles, of ethics, and of conscience. Yeah, absolutely. Very well articulated, summated, uh, Aviv. Next to that, present just one more dimension, which is to do with how humans were meant to think. Because mm. humans, humans are feeling beings. So again, a, a crucial aspect of development, personal development, leadership development, and there is meant by design, meant to be a very close and deep connection between thinking and feeling. And the human should never really think without feeling about whatever it is they're thinking about. Because the feeling dimensions then brings into the equation certain faculties like the emotions, the mind, 
the mindfulness, the care that allow the human to create while they think in terms of quality and values. When a human gets to a point where they disconnect the thinking from feelings, you can then end up creating absolutely satanic stuff because you're not really feeling what you're doing. So you will create this little device and say, hey, look, do you see this cube? Yes, with this pattern. Yes. What is it? Ah, you just press here and it destroys the whole universe. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, this is uh, like I'm taking it to an extreme, of course, here. The biggest, like one of the big challenges for scientists, for technologies, is to keep the thinking and the feeling faculties connected so that they feel what they're doing and they feel the outcome of what they're creating rather than disassociate to the point of having no feelings whatsoever and therefore no ethics whatsoever in relation to what they're doing and creating. Mm. What's the third element adding to the thinking and the feeling? Is it, is it the being or is it the doing or is it both? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I'm, I'm asking because one of the key principles that we have both been guided by for years is what we call the, the law, perhaps what we call the law of three octaves, which inside a, a spiritual uh, context and teaching is fondly called the, the Taj Mahal principle. Right. And what it says is that for there to be movement, you must produce and create alignment of three octaves. Right. Because for as long as there are only two octaves that are connected and aligned, then the two right. will in some way be, be stuck because they either cancel each other or hold each other in a situation where there isn't yet the, the siphoning that's necessary to, to produce movement. So as an example, a leader or an entrepreneur can have an idea. Then there may even be a market, but you need the third octave in the middle in the form of a vehicle that will bring the idea to the market. And in the same way, uh, for a teaching to come alive, it has to have a form of practice. And for the practice, there has to be a group of people or a community in which the learning and the development and the growth can, can go on. So for example, and I'm curious, I'm asking this in the sense of your work with CEOs, because in the case of a single leader, and as you already painted there, I think one way to look at the three octaves could be is that octave one is the organization in which they offer leadership and that organization provides them with a theater and expression. And octave two is the leader, the leader himself or herself. And octave three is the future vision or the purpose or the cause that they are moved to serve and co-create with their team. So, how do you bring this awareness in your work with clients you help that sense that to facilitate movement, to facilitate growth, to, fa to facilitate a change that you shape rather than one that happens upon you, you'd be wise to look to, to well align and, and produce these three octaves of movement that yes. one siphon and uh, powers the other. It, yes. How is this uh, uh, or not part of your work? Yeah, very much part of the work. You're touching on an absolute core element of the work. I can even describe it. This is a very simple diagram that I often use mm -hmm. of three circles. Uh, and you have a one circle bottom left, 
if you if you imagine an, a clear a, an A4 page in front mm-hmm. of you mm-hmm. that is uh, laid on the table in uh, uh, vertically rather than horizontally, right? And so there's one circle at the bottom left, there's one circle in the middle, and the one circle on the top right, and they do have a common denominator, which is the interlacing. So there's a little bit of territory which they share. Okay. And if you look at the middle middle circle, you can put words such as repetition, maintenance, and the top right uh, future. Right. And the top left at the bottom. The bottom is, left, yes. Yeah, the bottom left. Sorry, yes, the bottom left. You can put there like history or the irrelevant. And then uh, most of what happens, like in the corporate world or the world generally, is people in an ongoing endeavor to maintain. They're in the middle, stuck in the middle, and they are working to maintain something, to keep it going. How much work do people invest every day just to keep an operation going? How much repetition do they invest into it? And the threat, a big threat of a time, this time in world history, which is so dynamic, so fast-moving, where where technology is shape-shifting, is changing. You you never know. You wake up in the morning, has something that you do become irrelevant because someone has come up with something uh, much better or different. And these days, the way of promoting or communicating has gone so much uh, so different than in the past because of all the different channels of communication where you can deliver a message to millions of people much, much faster than years ago. The big, uh, like the challenge for leaders, number one is to make sure that the irrelevant will not swallow mm-hmm. like their whole operation, literally, because the irrelevant is a big magnet, big magnet there. It's just, it wants to eat into it. It loves making things irrelevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like an entity that just loves to do that, to eat whatever it is into it. And it's almost like, or maybe not so, almost has a life of its own. But then there is the future. And the future is a something, again, a part of, I think, probably one of the main subjects of our dialogue over the years, ongoing dialogue, is this state of proposal that exists. It's there in the air, and it's screaming to just about anyone who has the ear to listen. It says, look, you have an opportunity. Your life has an opportunity here and now to connect, to develop, to evolve. It's an opportunity that probably has never been present on Earth in this way before. And it's like it gives people permission to be themselves in new ways, to discover what does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be the creative you, Mm -hmm. the progressive you, the person who leads oneself into completely new self-realization? And the question is, how do you make this step from being stuck in the middle in trying to maintain something or even living through the illusion that you are really creating something new as you may not and bringing a bit more of that future inside? I know that's been a big, big part of your work. Uh, Aviv, including the uh, the brilliant book that you wrote, Creating New Futures. And so the question is, how do you help people to make that step, which is for them to shift, shift center of gravity, to live in that circle, which is called the future, yeah. 
and to discover what it means for them. Yes. What it means for them, because it means different things to different people and different things to different organizations. Yes. So my intuition is that this could be a point to launch into a whole new next part in the conversation, more around, indeed, future leadership and evolutionary leadership. And right. what do you uh, mean And when you talk and, and write about this? But perhaps this can be left for a part two when, whenever we get to do part two. And perhaps we can uh, approach uh, the, the lending of this conversation today with, with one final question, which is with everything we reflected on and, and you shared, yeah. what would be a practical advice that you'd want to perhaps leave with people listening to uh, Create New Futures in terms of wherever they are in their journey as leaders and executives, something they can choose to embrace today and bring into uh, their work and their life? Yes. Yeah, wonderful question to conclude this process. Really wonderful. Where my mind goes is set yourself free. Learn how to set yourself free. And uh, this is a time, we live at a time which creates opportunities for each person to set themselves free in a new way and through that to become creative in new ways. And you know, every person, when you say to a person and you say to speak to them and say, you know, set yourself free, you can be much freer than you are as a human being. They know, they just know, they know it. Not because necessarily they're inhibited personally, but because they intuitively, deeply feel that there is much possible, much more possible for them in terms of the discovery of their own capacity. Don't be shy to be different. Do something different. Do something different. And even if it's very, very small, you know, whatever it is, do something different. And when, you know, this saying, one of my favorite saying, when you change one tiny little thing, you change everything. Yes. So choose something in terms of how you deal and how you converse, how you communicate. Do something different. Really and put yourself behind it fully to discover a whole new world completely disproportionate to the tiny little thing that you are looking to change. Wonderful and practical advice that each one of us can choose to implement immediately in simple and new ways including breaking out of habits, breaking out of uh, the traditional approaches we always used. Uh, David, this has been a rich uh, exploration with you today. Thank you uh, so very much. Well, thank you, Avi, for this uh, remarkable, special opportunity. And I really look forward to whenever there might be an opportunity to follow on. And do part two. Yeah, do part two whenever. Great, thank you. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey And it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, cultivate expanded awareness. Become aware of what's going on in you and recognize your stress response. Identify how you react under stress by slowing down the conversation and reflectively seeing yourself in the moment. Practice first in easy situations and gradually build the capacity to override the stress response and redirect it by activating an alternative pathway. Second, promote and renew yourself. The strength and muscle power that brought you here is insufficient to meet the new opportunities and challenges you are encountering today. 
unleash latent capabilities as you embrace new opportunities. Third, as David said, set yourself free. Don't shy away from opportunities that allow you to be different and to act in a new and unusual way. Release yourself from premature fixing of habitual and narrow range. Explore new ways of being and of doing. Let yourself discover yourself anew inside emergent scenarios and celebrate the expanded freedom you will discover. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.